Friends, thank you for landing your spacecraft here at Area 51 and a Half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. I am your host, John Allen, also known as Spooky Uncle John, and with me as always is my co-host and producer... Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. Nick, how can our aliens get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at the area 51H, as well as on Facebook by searching for area 51 and a half and everyone don't forget to rate us like us share us and subscribe to us nick i gotta ask how much longer are we even going to be on twitter is twitter even going to be around oh john i well we're going to be on twitter until the bitter end because i am fully entertained by all of this (laughs) but i the way it's going i don't see twitter being around for all that much longer oh my gosh i don't even know what to say the world has just gone crazy i just just so you know, and just so the viewers know, I have been exploring some other social media platforms, including one called Clapper, and one, I know, and one called Mastodon, and I have us on a wait list for, I know, I know, and I have us on the wait list for uh, Sky Blue, which is actually being put together by people who used to work for Twitter, so I'm excited for that. So... I'll keep the I'll keep the listeners apprised uh, of where we wind up. Yeah, I mean, Sky Blue sounds all right. I don't know who comes up with some of these names, but yeah, no, I mean, whatever, we're, whatever. We're all thinking it. We're all thinking it. Well, Nick, we have to start the program in kind of a sad way, but it's certainly something that deserves to be talked about, and that is the passing of Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy, aliens, if you don't know, has been the voice of Batman since 1992, I think, yeah. in the animated cartoons from the WB. So this speaks to me very deeply. When I was a kid and this cartoon came out, Batman Mania was was huge at the time. Yeah, it's coming off the Tim Burton Batman. Yeah, the Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson and all that, right? And I I still remember the advertisements for this show as it was coming up. Right. And I was so excited for it. And it had a very similar aesthetic to the first Tim Burton Batman movie, and it had well, actually had uh, music directly from the movie. Yeah, Danny Elfman's score. Yeah, it and it came off so well and so iconic and so brilliantly. And part of that was Kevin Conroy's voice acting as as Batman and as Bruce Wayne. Now, the the thing about that cartoon is a lot of the voice acting wasn't just spot on. It was straight up iconic between Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill. When I read Batman comic books and I'm manifesting that voice in my head, it's Conroy's voice I hear as Batman. It is Mark Hamill's voice I hear as the Joker. And that's that's what I have such a tie to Kevin Conroy as a Batman fan. Well, listen, not only that, but I mean, this was a significant cartoon. I mean, I was in my early 20s when this came out. Yeah. I watched it. You know, I absolutely watched it because I loved those Tim Burton Batman and Batman Returns. I thought they were spectacular. Um, they haven't aged particularly well, particularly Batman Returns. Uh, yeah. But the Batman with Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton is still, uh, bar none, a fantastic Batman. So when you use those as a springboard for this cartoon, and then that just leapfrogs into all the other cartoons, um, 
I'm forgetting the name of it. The one, the, the first movie that they came out with that actually went to Mask of the Ma- Phantasm. Mask of the Phantasm, yeah. Siskel and Ebert actually gave that two thumbs up. It's a great movie. You know, so I mean, you have this richness in this animated series that, as you said, Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill have just added to that. And for him to have been Batman for that long... Yeah, and it's not just in that cartoon series as well. He was also... Uh, he voiced them, voiced him in several animated movies. He was in uh, one of the crossovers with Batwoman, Green Arrow, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, voiced them in the Arkham series. Yeah. The Arkham when, video game series. And when you look at this, the, the original cartoon, this is also where Harley Quinn was born. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so this is like just, uh, it's a significant moment in history for that animated series to even have have come forth. Yeah. And for him to be a part of it, he, there is a gravitas to his voice mm-hmm. that, as you say, makes it perfect to be Batman and Bruce Wayne. Yep. There is a slight switch that he does, which you don't really see in any of the live actions. A subtle switch that we definitely don't see. Like comparing Christian Bale's voice, you have Christian Bale and then you have... I'm Batman. Like that, it, it, some of them are a little ridiculous. Michael Keaton just lowers his voice. It's not really much of a change. Of course, George Clooney and Val Kilmer didn't do anything to change their voice. But with Kevin Conroy, yeah, there is that subtle change in pitch with his voice. Yeah. And it works so excessively well. Yeah, and it, even in that animated series, with that voice acting, you see that idea that it's very separate. Now, mm-hmm. I mean... You alluded to the Christian Bale one. Yeah, very separate Bruce Wayne's. I mean, in all the iterations, his Bruce Wayne is just a colossal dirtbag, you know? He's entitled and he's doing this this spoiled rich kid persona kind of thing to really sort of throw off the scent that he's the Batman. Yeah. It works in the world it's in, but it doesn't work quite as well as... Other iterations of Bruce Wayne, I yeah. think. And that's where I think Kevin Conroy nails that spirit. Yeah. Kevin Conroy, like when he voices Bruce Wayne, you, he has this very caring element to his voice. You can tell that he's a genuinely good person. But when he's Batman, he all business. Yeah. But yeah, he's absolutely great. Now, one of the things, just to talk about that series a little bit further, because I love the series. One of my favorite production decisions that they made the entire series was drawn on black paper oh okay yeah so instead of using white paper they use black paper and that gives it that kind of dark well obviously it gives it that dark aesthetic right and it it just makes it look so brilliant yeah it works for batman and listen fans of the animated batman and all of the movies and all of the other uh animation that came from it that kevin conroy was a part of uh we will miss kevin conroy voicing the batman May he rest in peace and thank you for this, like, what is it, like 30 years? Yeah, 30, well, yeah, 92, yeah, yeah. 30 years as Batman, boom. Yeah, just astounding. Um, speaking of actors that are astounding, yeah, let us talk about Terrifier 2 for a minute here. Now, this, we're going the opposite direction. We now have an actor who doesn't say a word, but is 
just phenomenal in this new horror icon of Art the Clown, and that's yeah. David Howard Thornton. He's so good. And the the neat thing is, to I've seen actors work with masks on and really get that physicality going. But I could I can't really pinpoint a lot of actors where they have no lines whatsoever, but their physicality can just does all the talking for them. Yeah, I mean he is really a scary uh villain in this yeah and you know he was even i thought even scarier in the original terrifier yep um and and it's just these scenes are very grisly and i think that damien leone who is the writer director of the terrifier series i think he writes those scenes exceptionally well oh yeah I see why people were maybe, you know, losing their popcorn, if you will, yeah. and fainting. Because that bedroom scene, oh, oh, we're not going to get into spoilers here because I don't want to do a spoiler oh, alert. Man. Let's save that for for later on when we talk about uh, Wakanda Forever. But I, I can understand why people... Uh, on the big screen, it's 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 more in your face. We didn't see it on the big screen. No, it hasn't it hasn't been available for us to watch it on the big screen here in Canada. But I'm kind of glad we didn't. Um, so going back to I, I honestly, what I think, Damien Leone, I think he for this movie, he sat down with David Howard. He had to have sat down with David Howard Thornton and gone over these scenes together to kind of workshop this and come up with these awfully gruesome scenes but the the really neat thing with art though is there is kind of a contrast because he's still a clown he still he still does goofy weird like the scene with the, yeah. the sunglasses yeah like that was there's ridiculous. humor there, there is, is humor. humor there is dark humor um yeah it's uh it was a fun, enjoyable yeah, romp and I with wanna, David Howard Thornton. And I don't want to say that it's mime. Like, somebody asked David about uh, his miming skills or where he learned the miming skills. And I, I, I didn't really follow the conversation that closely because I was looking up other things. But I don't think David actually has any professional mime background. And the truth of the matter is, I don't consider art to be mime. I consider that to be a different kind of performance. He's acting. Yeah, like the, the the thing I think one of the things is people when people think miming they think the the guy in the black yeah, and white yeah. face trapped in the box. Miming is doing that physicality yeah. without the words. That's the whole thing. But the the thing is you're trying to describe emotions, feelings and what you're doing through the physicality. And that's the thing is like with art, yeah, he he's describing essentially what what art is doing through his physicality what art might be thinking through his physicality but it's not the the over extensive movements that you get in traditional mind and you know it's interesting when you put him up to other horror icons let's say freddy or jason or michael or whoever right there is a purpose to what they're doing yeah. Whereas with art, it just seems like he's doing it for the sheer glee of it. I want to just go back to talking about Freddy for a second and compare art to Freddy. I think what Damien Leone has done with art out the gate is really smart. Because I'm pretty sure Damien Leone knows he has a franchise here. Well, he does now, for sure. Absolutely. But with a franchise, there comes the possibility of watering down a character like Freddy. Right. Freddy went from being absolutely butt-puckeringly 
frightening in that first movie to cracking wise by the seventh movie. Right. He he goes from this terrifying character to a cartoon character. Right. And that happens. I think Damien Leone has set it up so that you you have that humor with art in the beginning so that you can't water it down with the humor. Now, obviously you can water it down with more humor, but I don't think that that is the direction this film series will go. No, but there is a certain type of humor. And this is like a dark humor, right? So the, the humor for art is a purpose. Like it's a distraction. It's, it's like the, um, the glamor, if you will, it's, he's, playing this magician's trick with the distraction over here and he distracts his victims with the humor and then yep. all of a sudden boom but even then and again we i don't want to get into spoilers but part of the the the, the thing with the bath or the bedroom scene is that it is a, a a mashup of feelings because you've got all this scare and all this gore and he's still doing funny stuff during it and it's disturbing it's, it is it's, so disturbing it stayed with me yeah you know which very few things do but that one did stay with me now it didn't cause me to have nightmares or, or lack of sleep or whatever but it does sit with you for a while and this is not for your novice horror fan no. by any stretch of the imagination this is purely for the gore hounds if if the Conjuring films scare you. You might want to avoid this one. Now, Nick, the, there is a problem with Terrifier 2 that we do have to address. Yep. So, Damien Leone has absolutely written the art scenes phenomenally well. Oh, yeah. And he has written all of these scenes. And our lead actress does a great job. She does. She's, like, people are saying that she's one of the best new final girls. And I'm entitled to agree with that. I, I cared about her. Her emotions were great. There were some problems, but they weren't her fault. Yeah, and there are shades of Dream Warrior yeah. in this. You yeah, know? I really dug that. So some of the narrative to me was a bit confusing, but the scenes that didn't involve art really f felt very flat. They were boring. That's, that, that, that's me being nice. Um, the movie was too long. Yeah, two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. I felt like two and a half hours was... If it had been two and a half hours and just, I don't know, an, literally an hour and a half of just art scenes, I think that would have been fine for me. But it was two and a half hours, and it was too much exposition. It was too much clunky dialogue. And some of the actors in this film were not great. Well, it was exposition that didn't really go anywhere, I felt. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they were setting things up with the younger brother. They were setting... A, a whole bunch of stuff up that just didn't work, and there then, was no and then, payoff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this isn't. It's a spoiler, but it's not a spoiler. The the friend taking our, our our lead actress out for a Halloween night to a bar, and then slipping her slipping her Molly. I mean, yeah, I it, there was no point to that, and that just went on and on. And a lot of the the dialogue in that scene particularly felt very redundant. It's like we've already done that, and we already did that, and the only setup for that is. You know, so that because we do know that usually if you're a friend of the final girl, you're gonna die. That's not yeah. a spoiler, you know. So the thing with the Molly, and I'm not up on my street drugs, just just so we're clear here. But my understanding is Molly is Molly's kind of like ecstasy. It just makes you feel really yeah, nice yeah, yeah. and makes you feel drunk. If it had been something that was like a hallucinogenic, I could see how that would have um, played into the final act of this film. Yeah. 
but it wasn't hallucinogenic. And I'm just like, I, I don't understand the point of this. It just makes the friend look absolutely god-awfully terrible, which, regardless of what drug she would have yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just, it, it seemed, it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, there's a lot of randomness that sort of happens that I don't know what the the point was. Maybe there's some stuff that's lost in the editing. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. I don't want to overly criticize this low-budget movie because, I mean, the, that's, that's part of it right there. But I think moving forward, to me, Terrifier was the better movie than it's Terrifier 2. It's too. the stronger movie. Yeah. It's a stronger movie because it is, it's quick. It stronger is acting. Stronger acting. It's quick. And the the, the the pacing is so much better. Yeah. But moving forward, bring back that final girl. Bring back Absolutely. Art. Let them have another showdown. You don't need the younger brother. He's just kind of in the way. Um the the mother didn't work. I get what they were going for that, but I think she was just a little bit over the not the actress, the the way that it was written yeah. was just a mm-hmm. little too over the top for me. So let's let, let's close off this this crap sandwich with 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 the nice with another good thing about this film. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget. Yeah, and it has made over ten million dollars. And if you look at those art scenes, uh-huh. I mean. They are really good scenes. They're good cinematography. It's good acting. It's good storytelling. It's good uh, horror. Yeah. It's it's the sort of thing that Rob Zombie does with a, a very small budget, it's, and and he used that and 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 did everything he possibly could with that. It's very very reminiscent of Grindhouse Theater. Yeah, doing as much as you can with the little that you have. Yeah. And making it look as good as possible. And it's a hard thing to do a review like this or to do a talk like this where half the movie isn't good, but the other half is fantastic. Well, and if you're a horror and gore hound, you are in your Xanadu with this. This yeah. this is Valhalla. Well, and that's the thing. Like prior to when we when we talked about what type of rating would we give it, what type of grading would we give it, I said I gave it a C because that is, I feel that's fair, it is middle of the line um, grade for a movie that is... Yeah. The, the art scenes are fantastic and the rest just kind of sucks. Well, I, yeah, if I'm going to do it this way. Art scenes, you get an A+. Mm-hmm. Other scenes, yeah, C. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But David Howard Thornton, A++++. Keep doing it. Absolutely. And I am, I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to more and more art merchandise coming out. Like, I want an art figure for my collection. Yeah. Um, I, saw, I saw a woman on... Uh, Twitter earlier she's got an art handbag I'm like that's brilliant I love it and Lauren Levera as Sienna she also gets an A plus she is a fantastic final girl I, I'm expecting good things from her me too and apparently she's not 44 <laughs> in case anyone's wondering I don't know what age she is she's definitely not 44 and on that note it is time for Nick's pop culture roundup all right, John, it has been another banger week in pop culture, movie, video game, and TV news. We have the release of God of War Ragnarok. Oh, God it, of War is one of those video games that is just transcended. It is, and it's really neat because Kratos, the, the main character, has been in other video games outside of God of War, seeing him in things like um, Mortal Kombat, Soul Calibur, stuff like that. But this game 
looks gorgeous. Like the last one was gorgeous. This one looks absolutely beautiful. And integrating aspects of um, of northern mythology into it, moving away from the Greek mythology, absolutely brilliant stuff. Uh, next up, Ava Rain, formerly Simone Johnson, The Rock's daughter, has made her NXT debut uh, as part of the group Schism. Now, it's an interesting thing for me because, okay, I have questions about this and I really don't know what to say about it. If your parents are in wrestling, it behooves you to associate yourself if you're beginning off, if you're starting off as being part of that family. The dynasty. The dynasty. And she is part of one of the biggest wrestling dynasties yeah. at the moment, the Samoan dynasty, the Maya yeah. Via family. Yeah. It blows my mind. Now, I understand that WWE wants to own all the wrestlers' names, but there are some people where they let them keep their real names or their, their stage names that they had before WWE. AJ Styles, when CM Punk was part of it. Austin Theory. But having having her as Ava Rain instead of Simone Johnson or associating her with the Maivia fam family in some way, shape, or form, considering that her dad is literally the most successful wrestler of all time, just seems like a bad idea to me. Well, maybe she wants to make her own name. But even then, that still seems like a bad idea to me. Now, John, speaking of wrestling, uh, I enjoy watching Young Rock, speaking of The Rock, I enjoy watching Young Rock on NBC. It is a fun little series, I really enjoy it, and... A lot of it is back flashbacks to when The Rock was a kid. And they do a flashback to when he was a small kid. And he gets to meet Cindy Lauper. And they had Becky Lynch, the man who's current, who is a current WWE uh, performer, as Cindy Lauper. And I love that. And it was really... She's Irish. Right. She's very Irish. And her trying to do Cindy Lauper's New Jersey accent is just absolutely adorable. But it's good to see her doing that it's good to see them actually injecting actual wrestlers into this show because a lot of the people that they cast as wrestlers just don't look look great but well, yeah and i think a lot of people forget that city lopper was really big into the wwf at that point, yeah yeah um in the 80s you yeah, know she was the huge push be between the rock and wrestling connection yeah i mean there was that whole idea of the wrestlemanias where they would bring in these celebrities yeah. and that's you know she became really good friends with captain lou albano he he shows up in the goonies uh, video as, and I think is girls just want to have fun. Yes, as her father. Um, <laughs> you know? So part of the story in the episode of Young Rock that I was watching was about the Goonies video, right? And it's funny because uh, um, Dwayne Johnson's dad, Rocky Johnson, said they're going. It's a great video. No idea what it has to do with the Goonies. <laughs> it's a great video. Absolutely love that. Yeah, you know, speaking of performances uh, of well-known rockers, yeah, I watched Weird. Yeah, and. Evan Rachel Wood, even though this is like this, of course, it, it, it's it's Weird Al Yankovic parodying a biopic. Because of course he would. Based on his life, right? If he's going to do a biopic about himself, he's going to parody it. Yeah. Evan Rachel Wood does a great Madonna in this. She does. I, I've always loved Evan Rachel Wood. Uh, she was my favorite, well, beyond Anthony Hopkins, she was my favorite aspect of Westworld. She is such a great actress. She was fantastic in her uh, role as of the queen in True Blood, and I've always like 
it was great to see her as Madonna and just to do that role. And she was she had great chemistry with Daniel Radcliffe, who was also really good as this. Radcliffe likes to go to those weird kind of roles. He he likes doing that, and you know what? It's working for him. And as far as the, as far as the movie goes, it did what it said on the tin. It was weird. It was weird. So moving on, uh, we have. We have confirmation that Netflix is working on a uh, series based on the Gears of War video game. Now, Marcus Phoenix from that video game series bears a very striking resemblance to a one Dave Batista. So the character looks like Batista. Yeah, the character looks like Batista. So Batista went on Twitter with a video, dressed up as Marcus Phoenix, and basically, no, he didn't just basically say, he said, I can't make it any easier for you, Netflix. And I I love it. I love it when actors do something like that to get the attention. Because he's right. He should be playing that character. Yes, absolutely. That is just how it is. Yeah. Um, I remember years ago, the uh, I can't remember his name, but the, guy, the, the old Spice guy. Right, right. He did a mock-up video of him as Luke Cage. Now, obviously, it did not get him the role. But I like seeing actors kind of do that thing instead of just going in an interview saying, oh, I'd like to do this role or this role. Go after it. Be aggressive. And have fun with it. Yeah, but in this case, really, you know, I mean, if the character looks like Batista, is as big as Batista. Yeah. Basically, probably modeled after Batista, then get Dave Batista. And the best thing is, is like... You know, I can make the argument if they did a God of War movie, they could have Triple H play Kratos because they look similar, but Triple H can't act worth a damn. But Batista, we know, can at least act, and I'm for that. So I I want to see it. I'm sure a lot of other people want to see it. I am here for it. <laughs> and then let's go over to the DC Expanded Universe, the DC movies. So it has recently come to pass that James Gunn, who we love, um, yeah. and well, I love James Gunn. You, you're wrong, uh, I'm Peter. Not, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. I mean, look, the, the man's talented, but I don't love everything he does. And some of the stuff he's done has been, in a way, kind of odd. Well, I mean, he started off as a trauma a trauma guy. Yeah. And, and that, that's a really neat thing. Because and knowing he, that history makes it a little bit easier for yeah, me to go, to go okay, from, but I, I wouldn't say I love him. To go from trauma to now being one of the heads of the DC films, yeah. that's amazing. That's a shift from Marvel over to DC. Yeah. Now, we've also got Peter Safran who's working on this with him, and they've just announced they have an 8 to 10 year map for these movies. So the way it is, they're going to be working on a... Um, a single story that encompasses these films, television, cartoons, video games over the next 10 years that all congregate together into one final, what I'm assuming will be right. a Justice League film. And in all honesty, that's what I that's what we need to see yeah. from the DC universe. But here's here's my concern with it. The reason I say eh, I'm a little bit leery is that I, I think that James Gunn will sometimes not keep it as family-friendly as he should. There are certain characters and certain movies that, yes, 100%, they are not for your children. Deadpool, not really for your children. Logan, the old man Logan series. Yeah. Kids, kids, I would assume, would be bored by that one. Yeah. Um, 
DC to me has always been family friendlier than Marvel in a way. So here, here's the thing. Here's what I would expect. I would expect that James Gunn now has the Kevin Feige position. Right. He is not directing all these. He is just. He's just uh, casting the wave. I don't expect he is going to be involved. He's like executive producing yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't expect him to be like, for example, to your point, Shazam. He's gonna. Ha- it's gonna be this over-encompassing story, but I don't imagine he will be heavily, heavily involved in Shazam to the point that he's making dick jokes. Right. So I, th- I think it'll be fine. On that level, and at the end of the day, it's it's finally a plan for DC. Yeah. It's finally like this is what well, they Snyder needed. Snyder had a aided. plan for DC, but it just was a bad plan. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I... I'm not trying to take the wind out of your sails. I'm just... No, I, I mean... I'm just but, a little what, what, tired of being hopeful because, I mean, if we look at what happened with our review of, of Love and Thunder, I mean, Taika Waititi could do no wrong until Love and Thunder came along. But there was there were issues with that. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is Marvel, Disney, and Kevin Feige, Kevin Feige, he, they let Taika Waititi off the, off the chain. And that's what they got. I mean, if you compare that movie to what we do in the shadows, it's they are vastly different films. Mm-hmm. Taika Waititi's doing his own thing, but not at a hundred million dollar budget where he can literally do anything he wants. Well, no, but even when you look at something like Jojo Rabbit, you look at uh, the Wilder people, you look at all the things that he has done. You mentioned uh, what we do in shadows, the the original yeah. movie. This is all brilliance. Mm-hmm. Ragnarok was brilliant. Yeah. I don't know what happened here. I think it, I think he indulged in himself far too much. I think he was... Uh, yeah, but I, I kind of got to blame Chris Hemsworth, too, because he's listed there as one of the executive producers. I think that those two... Okay, I think it's a, um, a Gore Verbinski, Johnny Depp type thing, where all the, or a Tim Burton and Johnny Depp type thing, where they just conflate they, each other's egos. They got to a point where, how are you going to say no? Yeah. Exactly. They think each of them poop chocolate cake <laughs> and they can do no wrong. Well, unfortunately, this is what happens. Now, as I mentioned, I didn't hate Thor uh, Love and Thunder. Oh, I didn't hate it, but, but it's not. it didn't live up to its predecessors, and that's including the Dark World. Yeah, and it was wholly disjointed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, the thing is, when you're coming off of Ragnarok, which was brilliant... Now... You can make the argument, I don't want to get into this too much, because, but you can make the argument that it's being told from Quark's point of view. Well, that's that's probably not a good idea. No, I didn't want it from Quark's point of view. To cap off the roundup, let's talk, I'm going to mention, mention another wrestling thing. Uh, WWE Crown Jewel was last weekend. Now, Crown Jewel is their big Saudi Arabia show. And the main event was Roman Reigns versus, of all people... Logan Paul. The, the YouTuber guy? Yeah, the YouTuber guy. The uh, <clears throat> the very rich YouTuber guy. He's now in wrestling. He's He has a short contract. I think it's like six dates or something like that. And they are paying him a ton of money to come in and wrestle against people like The Miz. And now Roman Reigns. And John? I, wait a minute. I could see him wrestling with The Miz because The Miz was also... Came from social media. Yeah, I'm... yeah. Well, he was from the real life on MTV. Right. 
So you got a reality TV star, and that was part of it, right? That was part of the storyline. But now he's come in, and he's taking on Roman Reigns for the undisputed WWE Championship. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair look to have. Uh, John looks perturbed and confused. Well, that to me is, I'm going to take it back to my generation. That feels to me like Casey Kasem going against Hulk Hogan for the heavyweight championship. Now, a- am I wrong in that? Or I I don't know if I would agree with that because the thing is, is um, Logan Paul and his brother Jake both have uh, background in combat sports. Okay, uh, they've done boxing, they've done MMA, and they've won. And they've won against like uh, Logan Paul, I believe, won against 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 Floyd Mayweather. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So they have some credibility. All right. But still, to come into the WWE and start challenging for the title on your third match. That is unprecedented. And All John, right, so you are the wrestling um, historian here. Yeah, you're the the big wrestling fan. Tell me about this. Like, what is what's the whole reason for that to to sort of have that meteoric rise? Because usually somebody gets introduced. There's some tomfoolery. They climb the ladder, kind of thing. Well, that's the thing is he's been introduced as a celebrity guest, right? And that's that's what they're doing. They're basing this off of this is this is Logan Paul. This is the big YouTube celebrity. This is the guy that put down Floyd Mayweather. This is the guy that. Um, owns a $2 million Charizard card and he wore it down to the ring. Yeah, because like to me, it's, it's not like bringing Ronda Rousey no. over, you know? No, this is a wholly different thing. And the idea, honestly, I think the idea is to get more Gen Zers into pro wrestling. Okay. Get, get into WWE. And that's fine. But John, this is the thing that mystifies me. He's good. He is really good. He is... Um, well, if he's got I, that background with the combative sports, I could see him being good. I could see him taking it, taking to this like a fish out of water, a fish to water. It's it's more than that. Like the natural talent this guy has for pro wrestling, it's like The Rock, it's like Shawn Michaels, like it's like Bret Hart. Oh really? Yeah, it's like this guy grew up around it. So he's got the charisma. He's got, he's the, got the charisma, nerve, and talent. He's, right? He's got he's got the body for it. He's got a look about it. like the, he is a total package. In all honesty, if I was Triple H right now, I'd be throwing all the money at this guy to make him a main part of the roster because this guy has so much money potential. This guy has so much potential to draw. It's ridiculous, and I. I would watch. I would watch Roman Reigns versus Logan Paul in another match down in the future, because it was so, it was good. And Roman Reigns is he's part of the bloodline. He's part of the Maivia family. He's been around it, and he's not even as good as Paul. Wow! It it was amazing. And there are some. Uh, like I I follow other podcasters, specifically wrestling podcasters, and I've heard some of the more um, meaner ones. Say some really good things about Logan Paul. What's Jim Cornette say about it? He thinks he's good. Wow. See, and I don't like Jim Cornette. I'll be honest about yeah. that. Um, didn't like him as a manager. Don't listen to his podcast, except when I'm in the car with you and yeah. you, you happen to have it on. But what I do like about Jim Cornette is he knows his stuff. I would never, ever say anything against him that way yeah he is a wrestling historian he knows what he's talking about so if jim Cornette has a seal of approval for paul logan then i don't know what higher credibility you can get yeah and 
it was really cool because play, during the match he played into the whole social media thing, right? So he's got two of his boys off in the in the uh, in in the crowd, just right at ringside, and he grabs one of their phones. Now I'm watching this from my, from my buddy Alex, and we're like, did he just take some random guy's phone from the crowd? No, it was one of his entourage. Okay, great. And he goes up to the top rope with the phone. He's got I don't know if it's Instagram or TikTok or whatever, but he's got the phone on live. He's doing a live video from the top rope, and he jumps off the top rope onto Roman Reigns through the table on live. And, it, man, it was Listen, so cool. Listen, you know what? That is a great... I hesitate to call that as a gimmick, but, I mean, that's a great gimmick, really, because, I mean, that's where kids are at these days. I well, mean, you are on your phone a heck of a lot more than I'm ever on mine. And, you know, like, this is just, like, I think where it goes, right? Like, you take... We know if you take a kid's phone away as a form of discipline, they have meltdowns. Yeah. So I think this is very smart on the the WWE's part to bring in somebody who is a, a social media star, shall we say, and actually have that point of view that they can look at. 40 million views that video got. Oh. 40 million well, there you go. We're maybe we're in the wrong business. <laughs> yeah, we need to get into wrestling. No, you need to get into wrestling. I would just have to be like your your manager. I, I would, no, no, no. I, well, I'll have to commentate ringside. All right. So pure fantasy. If I if if I had a wrestling company, a promotion of my own, I would absolutely hire you as a manager, or at the very least, a color commentator. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I would, would love be, that. I'm like the Jim Ross character. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so. Amazing show from Logan Paul. Amazing yeah. show. And his brother got involved in it as well. The whole bloodline got involved in it. I it was a it was a banger ending to a fairly decent pay-per-view. You know, speaking spe Sorry, sorry, sorry. Premium live event. Speaking of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Speaking <laughs> I watched or rewatched, I should say, one of the worst, cheesiest things that they ever did. Where somebody just had a love for wrestling and a love for horror, and they combined it in this independent movie that somehow they got Dave Foley to be in from oh, Gets God. in the Hall. You know what I'm talking about? Monster Brawl. This thing is so bad, it's good. Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart is in it. Yeah, Kevin Nash is in it. It's just. An amazing thing that I don't know where they crowdfunded it, but it was kind of a fun little watch. I'm telling you, get your wrestling fans, get your, not not horror fans so much, but if you're a wrestling horror fan, just give it a watch on a rainy afternoon. It, it, it's interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't structured like a movie. It was actually structured like a pay-per-view. Yeah. It was really But neat. it was structured like a movie because it was structured like a... It's like a movie and a pay-per-view had yeah. a baby. Yeah. Because they have those scenes where they're introducing the characters, like the Cyclops is in his uh, realm doing his Cyclops thing. The witch is in her Salem realm with really cheap budget. They went to some, like, Pioneer Village, I guess. And, you know, she's doing her thing and... But, you know, the, it has those moments. Like, we've often said, and I don't know who said it, but it was credited to John Waters. There's no such thing as a bad movie because there's always something good in in every movie. I have to say, the makeup's actually pretty good. Yep. And Dave Foley and I, I 
I can't remember the other gentleman's name, the other actors, as the commentator, because they are professional actors, yeah. are great. Yeah, I agree. I had fun watching it. I probably would not sit down to watch it. If, if it was on, I'd watch it. If but, nothing else is Yeah, on. if there's nothing else to do, I'm like, yeah, let's watch Monster Brawl. But, but yeah, it was fun. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's sort of in the same vein as Bubba Hotep, you know? It's like, you just, just you got to watch them for fun. And Bubba Hotep is better than this. Yes. I yes. Will, I will definitely grant you that. But I mean, yeah, it's just sometimes, back to our conversation with John Miori, sometimes you just want these slices of... Gouda, you know what I mean. You want that cheese? Did you ever see WrestleManiac? No, I haven't I've, made you watch that. No, you have not. Are you going to make me watch that? I it's, might. Okay. It's terrible. It's so bad. Uh, I own it. It's so if, bad. If you suffer, I have to suffer. Is that yes? The idea? That's typically that's typically how we roll here, John. That's not new. <laughs> I'm Halloween and you're Hellraiser. Okay. It, it, it's got the guy that plays Michelle Trachtenberg's twin brother in Eurotrip, and that's it. Okay. <laughs> We're going to move on to Black Panther Wakanda Forever. But first, here is your spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Nick, where do we begin with Wakanda Forever? Um, well, yeah. Like, what a what an emotional ride of a film. It was so... From my perspective, first and foremost, this this makes up for all of the less than stellar outings for Phase 4. It makes up for Black Widow, it makes up for Thor, it makes up for a lot of it. Um, but It, it, it feel, felt very impassioned, because first of all, we are dealing with the first outing since Chadwick Boseman passed yeah. away. So there is that beautiful honoring of him. And they they do it very well and very tastefully. I was really worried they would just plaster his uh, his image all over the place, and they didn't. They had they had a couple scenes of cutbacks to the other movies. They had a um, a mural of him in the capital city. But other than that, they didn't really show him that much on screen. And it's a great catalyst for this emotional movie that yeah. that it is because it doesn't really feel. Like your typical Marvel MCU movie. it uh, This movie, and it definitely didn't feel like a Phase 4 movie. This movie had stakes. And this movie dealt with grief. And it didn't just deal with grief. It dealt with compacted grief. Grief upon grief upon grief. Because Shuri just doesn't lose her brother at the beginning of the film. She loses her mother partway through. And it's not just Shuri. It's, the, it, it's, it's, it's Namor and his people, too. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the... The, uh, the past traumas of indigenous species, of indigenous people, yeah. you know, and which we're dealing with here in Canada. But even then, it goes into the, the interglobal um, uh, crises of, okay, in the previous Black Panther movie, T'Challa doesn't know that, um, that Namor and his people exist. He certainly doesn't Nobody know. Nobody does at Nobody this point. Does. Yeah. And he certainly doesn't know there's vibranium anywhere else in the world except for Wakanda. He makes that assumption. And by making that assumption, he endangers Namor and his people. And it's just, it, it's it's a wonderful little story. Well, not little. It's actually a very sprawling <laughs> yeah. story. 
but they handle it very well. And it's it's something that we haven't seen in the MCU before because it is, it's not just the, the effect. Yeah, the MCU have has been very comic book. Yeah, you know, um, it, it has asked some deep questions. It has of had course. some narratives, and we've dealt with grief before, but, but nothing like this. Nothing like this. And I felt it was a very personal story for Ryan Coogler because how could it not be? Right. It was a very personal story for Letitia Wright because how could it not be? You could feel. It was Letitia Wright. I was I was blown away blown away by her because I was worried that she would not be able to carry this film and oh my god she carries this film and you can feel the weight of Chadwick Boseman not being there but it doesn't overshadow everything. Let's speak to that for a minute because this is a female driven superhero movie. Yeah. Okay. It's not not just with Letitia Wright but you've got uh, Angela Bassett, Denai Guerrero. Uh, Lapita Nyong'o. These are the, the the women that make up the main force of this movie. Yeah, uh, and the addition of uh, Riri Williams is uh, for with with Ironheart and whatnot. It um, absolutely amazing, and it, it is kind of interesting how you have this force of women, and the the men uh, Mbaku, mm-hmm. for example, do take kind of a back seat. I mean, he he's very much a, a presence in the film. But he kind of gets that kind of backseat uh, presence that the that women actors would get in a this t- right. in an action film, right? Um, which is really kind of neat. And I love the scene where Na- where he sees Namor. He's like Fishman. Yeah, <laughs> that is fantastic. I love Winston Duke as this as Mbaku. But but it's interesting too because you also have this idea where you have a patriarchal society led by Namor, and now a matriarchal society led by the queen and the princess, yeah. and this clashing of these titanic kind of forces you know where it's like you you don't want to mess with i mean i would not want to mess with those women by no. any stretch of the imagination well, and, and that was always the the thing about the first black panther movie that i loved the dormelage were um were a sisterhood of uh, of guards that protected the king i mean you don't really see that in a lot of modern stories where it's the women who are protecting the king yeah yeah and it's it's so fascinating and so rich to to watch this sort of unfold in an organic way like it's not on your nose it's not being preachy it's not being extreme it's natural yeah yeah um and another thing i want to bring up is tena cuerta tena cuerta is the guy that played Namor. I hope you're pronouncing that right. I really hope I am too. If I'm not, I am so sorry. Uh, he is a Mexican actor of Aztec descent as well. So m- mixing... I'm fairly certain in the comic books, the Atlanteans, as they are in the comic books, aren't don't have any ties to the surface oh, world at all. Yeah. But the um, using that... But, but Namor that, in, in, the, in the comics is clearly very white... Yes. And I I really think that this was a great way of doing it by getting into that Aztec um, background and, and history. I think that that's a great, I don't want to say change, but I think that it's a very, oh, it's, it's, it's a fantastic uh, slice, if you will, of, of multiculturalism that fits, that really, if anyone criticizes that, I would slap them. Namor comes from a point in time in comic books where literally all characters are white. Yeah. He is pre-World War II 
and he's he's he actually predates Marvel just like Captain America. Yeah. But taking that and it, I I love the style. I love how they integrate Aztec style into it made Namor. so much sense. Yes. Instead of just having oh hey it's a guy at the bottom of the ocean here's his culture here's his people and. It just looks so good. Yeah, because I, I don't like it when they try to force diversity. Make it fit. Make yeah. it be natural. And well, that's what they did here with Namor. And that's the thing. The stories are there to allow it to be natural. Mm-hmm. Taking taking something, I don't know, let's say Fantastic Four. Let's say they make a, a future Fantastic Four movie. And all of a sudden it takes place in Switzerland and they're all Swedish. Right. That doesn't make sense. Right. That's dumb. But that's forced. Right. But taking it and having it, um, having them do this Aztec thing with it, just, it really worked for Namor. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Angela Bassett. She's a powerhouse. I have, My God. I have loved Angela Bassett ever since What's Love Got to Do With It. Okay. So, and I'm going to be really, really frank here. A long, okay, a long time ago. I can't remember the movie is, but you explained to me that actors don't necessarily get an Oscar nomination for the entire role that they play. It's sometimes it's pieces right. that they get. And I think Angela Bassett has a supporting nom- uh, supporting actress nomination here for that scene where she's explaining to Okoye that she has lost everything. Yeah. Because that was powerful. That was amazing. Angela Bassett has deserved an Oscar since she played Tina Turner in What's Love Got to Do With It. There you go. Um, Yeah. Honestly, she she certainly does. Whether or not this is what will happen, I can't say. All the performances are extraordinarily powerful. Yeah. That scene that you're alluding to between her and Denai Guerrero is so fierce and so unapologetic and so... It's raw so well acted it's and this is the well, thing about wakanda forever it is solidly acted yeah i agree with that but part of me has to sit there and wonder how much of it is actually acting because the the pain of losing you and I have both worked shows, multiple shows. And when you work with people during a show, you become very close with them. You become very tight-knit. Oh, I'm sure they're drawing on that. Yeah, and they have to have they have to have drawn on that for a lot of the emotions that go with losing someone like Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. It's it, it was a it was a great film and honestly, I do think there are Oscar nominations here beyond, you know, the typical special effects ones. I do think that there is a possible nomination. I'm not going to guarantee a nomination here because I'm not that Listen, bold-headed. Listen, if, but... if they nominated the original Black Panther for Best Picture, this one would deserve it more than that one, I, I think. I agree with that. I do think that there is definitely a nomination for Angela Bassett. I do believe there is going to be a nomination for Best Song for that for uh, oh, Lift Me Up by Rihanna. Yeah, I think she'll win that, actually. Yeah, and... Yeah, I do think this deserves a Best Film nomination. Yeah, now let's talk a little bit about the visuals. Oh my god. They are spectacular. So, from everything from production design down to... Oh man, like just the way everything is set up. 
and some of the choices that they made. I, I love the way they integrated the uh, the whales and the yes. orca into the film. Yeah, I was amazing. I was shocked by that actually, and yeah. because they're they're well, the reason I say shocked, I don't mean shocked as in, oh, well, I I can't believe they did that. I mean shocked as in, it was kind of frightening. Yeah, to to watch, especially and, when you see that uh, that dorsal fin coming, yeah. and and he goes down and sees that it's it's an orca. I mean. So there's a bit of an elephant in the room with this. So we have Namor, and DC has already done an Aquaman movie. Right now, I believe Marvel they they kind of had the script flipped on them. Uh, Shazam had to do some stuff to differentiate itself from. Marvel's Captain Marvel, because right. in the comic book Shazam is called Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel. Yeah. So now we have Namor, who is a character that does predate Aquaman, by the way. Yeah. But they had to do some things to kind of differentiate him from Aquaman. Like, for example, they never use the term Atlantean. They never use right. the term Atlanta. Um, and I do, or Atlantis. Um, and I think that's smart. But I think the other smart thing was not using fish just using whales and orcas instead because with aquaman's ability he's able to control fish specific well i mean just underwater creatures but we most we mostly see sharks throughout that movie because sharks are are just predominantly fierce and this speaks again to the visuals because those uh the orcas particularly Look like real orcas. Yeah, I mean, you know they're not. Obviously, yeah. it's 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 a special effect. But by golly, they! I thought the special effects were were just phenomenal in this. I love the part where the orca springboarded one of the yeah. um, one of the guys from the ocean onto the Wakandan boat. I'm like, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> but yeah, like when you look at. I, one of the things, one of the ongoing themes in this film is revenge. and Vengeance. I think, vengeance. Vengeance. Revengeance. So here's the thing. I Letitia Wright had a hell of a job here because she had to convey so many different emotions. And one of those emotions was she had no control over her brother's passing. Namor wasn't just... Namor wasn't just... She wanted vengeance for her mother's death. This was the perfect scapegoat for her to get vengeance for her brother's death. Yeah. And that's all that comes down to. Now, she does make the, the right choice in the end, and I, I love it. Um, and another thing... Well, okay. But that is... It's such a brilliant story on that end. Well, but there's so many layers to it. There's so many... Like, we've talked about the, the patriarchy. We've talked about uh, the... Uh, the uh, atrocities to indigenous people we've talked like this all of these layers but there's also the layer of this idea of these two sort of unknown powerhouse nations going to war with one another that nobody can win yeah there's just absolutely no point to the war per se well like that and that's the thing is like they they bring up one of the one of the catalysts that gets things going is Namor wants the scientist that created the machine that could sense vibranium and found it in the ocean. There is n- absolutely no reason for Namor to actually kill that girl. That's Riri Williams, by the way. That's yeah. Ironheart, who is a teenager and it's awesome. Yeah. But 
he still wants to kill her. And in all honesty, again, there's no reason for it. She's created the machine. The machine can be created again. The only reason he wants it is wants to kill her is a show of force. But he's not revealing his people to the world. He's not yeah. revealing his nation to the world. He just wants to kill her. Yeah. And... I mean, and this is the thing. They get the Namor character down packed. Namor is a jerk. Yeah. Namor is famously a jerk. Even yeah. when he's being a good guy, even when he's working with the Avengers, he's still a jerk. He's an anti-hero. His... He's got some pompousness to him. There's some arrogance about it because he is, in a sense, he is a god. Now, he, his arrogance... His, his people certainly see yeah. him as a god. His arrogance is different than Thor's arrogance. Yeah. You know, but th- there is that almost yin and yang to it like with thor we get the spoiled frat boy right yes that grows and we get that maturity but with with namor it's all this idea of power yeah and And protection and being that leader and being uh that god to those people and taking that role very seriously and having that bravado when he goes, and because he is going to go against it. And Namor is really a very interesting character in the Marvel Universe because of that. Because he's an anti-hero. And you hit the nail on the head with protection. His first priority is his people. Yeah. And that is the same in this movie. That is the same in the comic books. Everything he does is for his people and his nation. Yeah. Now, if I'm going to criticize anything about this movie, and it's a hard criticism, I would kind of like to smack the sound guy a little bit. I didn't need to hear the fluttering of the wings on his feet. It was. It's a hard thing to translate from a comic book to the screen. It was a little distracting and a little kind of campy they might as well have thrown in the the the, the wilhelm screen <laughs> honestly i thought when the the part where uh mbaku chucks the one to Ooh. lock in uh into the ocean that i was i thought that was going to be yeah, i thought that was going to be the wilhelm scream i'm like yeah but i i just i just thought that the fluttering of the wings was a was a not a good choice i i i don't think now this is just opinion don't come no. for me it's. I just didn't like hearing that. The other thing I didn't like is the uh, jewelry in his nose. It kind of, to me, distracted from the look of Namor. Because he, he has a very simple look. Mm-hmm. He's got the pointed ears, got the winged feet, he's got the, the green bathing suit. That's it. I, again, with what with the... I didn't the, mind the armor. I just... Too much jewelry. With the design decisions that they made and where it came from, it made sense. I thought, I liked it personally. But this is what I'm getting at. Coco Chanel, famous fashionista, famous, everybody knows pretty much, has heard the name Coco Chanel. She has said, she famously said, before you leave to go out, look at yourself in the mirror and remove one piece. It's fashion, it's too much. It's just that one thing too much for me. Because, again, I felt it distracted from the look of it because all I was doing was looking at that thing because he's already got a beard, which Namor sometimes has had and sometimes hasn't. He's got the earrings going on, which, again, it's... And he's got the breastplate. It's it's just that... what I'm, I'm being very serious. I know it sounds funny, but it's just that one thing too much. So, and... It's, it's kind of interesting because I felt they actually downplayed that piece of jewelry. Because if you look at 
um, that type of jewelry in historical pictures and stuff like that, yeah. you see that it's a very long thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I liked it. Per, I loved his look. It didn't bother me. The flutter. I didn't even pay the flutter of the wings any mind. Yeah. Just one of those things. I, honestly, I liked the fact that they put the wings in this because I was like, well, are they going to have them fly? Well, no, they, they have ha- to have the wings. Otherwise, you know, I mean, that's like saying, okay, there's, well, let's do Wolverine, but let's not put the claws in. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that, but like the wings themselves, just the way they look, do kind themselves do kind of look campy. But there was a great, but there was a great reason for that, and you'll remember that scene. And it's a great bit of focus where where Namor gets shocked when when she pulls the, the I don't know if it was the feathers or full, the full wings, but I'm just like this is why they focused on them so that when she rips them out, yeah, it's like. That, that that's some that's some battle damage right there. That looked painful. So one thing I am going to bring up that I I'm it's not a criticism of the film itself, but for me it's a wasted actor. Um, the start of the film we see uh, the Talakans um, attacking a U.S. naval ship. Lake Bell, who is an actress I really really like, was in that opening scene. Uh, most recently. She's done. The, she's uh, portrayed the voice of Poison Ivy in the Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn uh, cartoon series. She gets popped in that scene, and I'm like, "That's a waste." I mean, Lake Bell's not. A, I mean, she's not a huge name, but she's still a name, and they could have used her for a more serious character somewhere. Somewhere, and I'm just like, that's, I, you know what? That that's not going to matter because people will kind of forget that she played that part because. Look at it. before it was the MCU. Mm-hmm. We had the Fantastic Four movies. That's and fair. Chris Evans played the Human Torch. He played Johnny Storm, and now we know him as Captain America. So, and even in the MCU, Gemma Chan was in uh, Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel, and was also in the Eternals as a completely different character. Yeah. Now, I, I am going to criticize uh, Wakanda Forever for one more thing, and it gets back to the whole comment about Coco Chanel. I really felt that at points it did drag. I think that they could have shortened it. I don't think it needed to be as long as it was. Because there were points where I'm just like, yeah, okay, yeah, no, okay, I'm getting, okay, oh, wow, you're really building up to the third act here, aren't you? So, and and there's another thing. Let's talk about that. Because when Namor initially attacks Wakanda... I thought that was actually going to be the third act. I thought that that was going to be the final attack, the final showdown. Yeah. And no, that was them just building up, and it was brilliant. And honestly, Namor was kind of scary at that point. Yeah, from that point, that, that was a good build-up. But there was there was some stuff that was just kind of... Yeah, some of the, the humor that they threw in kind of felt a little flat, but I still found it funny. It's not... I mean, no movie is perfect, but this does come very close. No movie is perfect except for Maximum Overdrive. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you will not be able to sell that to anybody nope. or any of our aliens listening. Not at all, no. No, so I I appreciated the fact, okay, yeah, there's humor in it, but given the, the, the gravity of this film, I'm glad they didn't overload it with humor. No, and they shouldn't have. And honestly, I uh, let's let's move on to one other point here. Martin Freeman and Julia Louis Dreyfus, right? Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So they don't give them a lot, but what they have, 
really speaks to the whole narrative here about um, nations looking after their own interests. And of course, they're representing America, if you will. Yeah. And they make some very, I'm not going to say what they are, but they really make some very poignant Mm -hmm. uh, points about how the government works and how America would react and how... You know, it, it's subtle, it's small, but it's like there's a lot of uh, self-criticism in there too. Yeah, there is. And it really works. And another thing with those two is I they had fantastic chemistry together. Yeah. I completely bought them as a divorced couple. Yeah. And that was, it was just so good. And, and that I, was a nice little surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting that. And I'm glad it happened. I'm, I'm really liking glad it this happened. character. I mean, she was introduced in the uh, MTU, the yeah. Mar- Marvel Television Universe, yeah, I during, guess. Uh, um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, but I, I like the character and I like how they've really built her up because I think this is the best version of that it is. character. It is. And this is the most we've we've been able to see of her so far. And I think that really... Seeing that she is humorous, seeing that she has a personality, it's no longer a cloak and dagger type character. You now have someone with with a character. Yeah. But but again, it, it sort of speaks to that idea of the different ways that women have to be in fighting a male-dominated mm-hmm. uh, role or, or, or industry or anything like that because you see that softer side but you also see that harsh side because remember that when she first comes on the scene and the guy introduces himself it's like yeah, hi and she's like oh how nice for you now you're going to show me this yeah the, the, the crime scene going to walk she, me through this she <laughs> doesn't have time for anyone's crap except for Everett's yeah and even then we find out in the end she's essentially playing him yeah so yeah yeah I mean and she's a brilliant actress um, and it's nice to see her Outside of her Elaine character from Seinfeld. It's nice to see her doing something that is not comedy. Because, I mean, you've got... Oh, it's still funny. It is still funny. I mean, yes, there is humor in this role for her. Yeah. But it's nice to see her do something a little more serious than a straight-up sitcom. When you think about her in um, Christmas Vacation, that's really just a precursor to Elaine. Yeah, exactly. You know? So that's what I mean. I really like seeing her in a character that isn't like her character in Seinfeld. Yeah. Like Veep is just Elaine in a political comedy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, again, don't get me wrong. I love, uh, I love Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I think she's funny as hell. I think she's gorgeous, but it's nice to see her do something a little bit different. Speaking of, speaking of gorgeous, I am just so struck at how beautiful these women are in this movie. Lapita Luongo oh is God. a gorgeous woman. Um, there is just this, this, I mean, Angela Bassett has always been an attractive woman, yeah. but there is just a sophistication about her in this role that is just, it, it just, they, they have this way of filming them in these movies that not only shows their strength, their courage, their talent, but also their beauty. Angela Bassett is a queen. And I don't yeah. mean she just plays one. 
she legitimately looks like a queen. Yeah. She looks stately. She looks stoic. She looks stern. But she, she is gorgeous. She is statuesque. And she you can see she has this softer side to yeah, her. Yeah, Lupita Nyong'o took my breath away when she first came on the screen. Yeah. I was just like, wow. I'm going to be honest with you. Anytime she comes on the screen, I, she takes my breath away. She's absolutely gorgeous. I, I still believe that Ma- as much as I like the character, Maz Kanata was a complete waste of Lupita Nyong'o. But anyway. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, I, I don't know about that. But, I mean, honestly, I, I, I've given it a few little criticisms, but overall, this is such a rich story that you need to see on the big screen, you need to pay attention to it, you need to to absorb the narrative. I think that this is one of those moments that it doesn't hit you over the head with it, it doesn't take a sledgehammer to your face, but it really will speak to all of those societal issues that we are facing in such an entertaining and deep and meaningful way that it becomes an aha moment if you will where i get it you know you i get what you're these people are trying to say and that's the point of movies that is the point of heroes that is the point of these kind of narratives to sit there and educate and entertain Superhero stories are supposed to be the best of what we can attain to be. Yeah. Superheroes, Captain America, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. It's, these are characters that have these powers or abilities or even are just rich and are using them to be the best yeah, versions of I themselves. Mean, whether, whether it's Superman struggling with his... Basically, he's the ultimate immigrant, but struggling with his responsibility to mm-hmm. the planet. Whether it's Peter Parker struggling with the wisdom of, of Uncle Ben and with great power comes great responsibility. Whether it's that idea of of vengeance and not allowing somebody else to go through the pain and suffering that Bruce Wayne went through as a child. And by, by stopping the criminal element, there is a flaw. There is a narrative that if we do not get that from our heroes, if we don't have that humility in them, they cease to be a hero. And that's kind of the thing with Shuri in this, is this isn't a character that necessarily... Her her weakness, her, her the, 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 the dent in her armor isn't the fact that she is beholden to the Wakandan people... The dent in her armor is that she is damaged and beholden to herself. This yeah. movie is about dealing with your grief and taking care of yourself. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of the and people the close self, to you. the self-blame. I, I'm going to be personal here for a minute. My father it's passed away two years ago. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, he struggled with memory issues. Now, he did not have Alzheimer's. Okay, that is proven. I we use that as an umbrella term. But he struggled for years with the melanoma. It finally got to him. Yeah. I have never felt so helpless in my life as a personal support worker watching that struggle, watching him go through that struggle. And now 2 years afterwards, I am still going through those personal struggles of did I do the best I could have for him? Did I advocate enough for him? Did I I 
the, the choices. When I got angry with him, I beat myself up for that. These are natural things that we go through. Don't anybody worry about me. I am fine. He is. I can attest to that. I am emotionally fine. But there is still that struggle that goes with it. And there is still those things that crop up. And there are triggers. And they do happen. And that's kind of what we see in this narrative. That Shuri has lost so much. And there's that foreshadowing as you alluded to, where the queen is saying, I have lost everything. And they, they want, you struggle for that. You want things back. You want to, you take your, your, your anger out on God or the medical system or whoever, you know, and all of that anger and all of that self doubt and all of that self deprecating introverted analysis will not bring them back. And that for anyone that's lost anyone, that is a really, really easy thing to relate to. And I think that's what really, really cinched this film for me is that it was, despite the fact this is a film about people in a fictional country who eat a heart-shaped plant and get superpowers, it was still incredibly relatable. Yes, because then the question is... This part of my life has been taken from me. This part of my stability, this part of my my consciousness is gone. How do I proceed now? Yeah, what, exactly. What direction do we go now? And when you lose a leader, I mean, we I'm not comparing the movie to this, but we're seeing that play out in real life. Queen Elizabeth has gone. How does Charles move on? King Charles move on? How does he bring that in? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's kind of that kind of royalty narrative. Where King T'Challa is gone. Mm-hmm. Who is the next heir? And how do they bring the nation forward? And the, the, the neat thing about that is they do leave that up in the air at the end. And I really, I really do appreciate that because it gives us something for Black Panther three. Yeah. Um, which I'm looking forward to now. And I'm, I'm hoping Ryan Coogler's back for it. I'm hoping they give Letitia Wright all the great dialogue because that girl can act her pants off. Um, yeah, it is a very different tone as it should be. Yes. Uh, it's, it's just a fantastic. It is a fantastic movie. I, it I, is. I, 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 I cop to the fact that, yes, sometimes I'm a three-year-old and dragged a little. There were some spots, if if they're being honest with themselves. But, again, that's the idea that I, I alluded to earlier, Coco Schnell and editing. Editing. It all comes down to editing. And I know we bring this up whenever we talk about a Marvel film or a Star Wars film or whatever. The whole idea of missed opportunities. And you know what, John? In this film... I felt there were no missed opportunities. I think they... No, I agree with you. There, there was absolutely nothing missed. Yeah. They they had the opportunity to make something special. And they, they did. did. They had the opportunity to make an organic, women-empowered, diversity-empowered film. And they, they did. did. And they said goodbye to Chadwick Boseman in a tasteful, In style. In so much style. Oh, my yeah. God. So, and, and you know, it's interesting the way they start that too. And I don't, I'm not going to actually go through that because I want people to experience that. Yeah. But it's like, here it is mm-hmm. right here at the start. Boom. Literally. Boom. And the reason they do that, because now we're invested in that journey. Yeah. And we and... have to go along that journey. And we, because they, they hit us with that wave of emotion, we now feel that. And now we're in there with her. And that's the thing is that 
the wave of emotion they hit you with that played very hard for me because Chadwick Boseman is one of the celebrity deaths that hit me the hardest because I just didn't see it coming because it was unexpected because this is this is what Chadwick Boseman did who knew he had cancer nobody why because no. he kept it to himself which is the sort of which is kind of what they, they spoiler this is what they springboarded in in the movie King T'Challa kind of kept it to himself yeah, we don't know what he died of in the movie. No. And, no, no, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And the rest of the world certainly doesn't know. They know he dead. Yeah. He, Anderson Cooper's in it. <laughs> and uh, he says from an unknown illness. Yeah. Yeah, fine. Um, and Because I, because that's not the point. The, uh, they did the same thing in Glee. When, um, oh, I, I forget the actor's name. Corey something or other. Corey Monteith. Yes, thank you. He died. Yes. And I remember the episode after that, that they filmed after that, where, I'm paraphrasing, this is not exactly it, but there's an over, uh, a voiceover with Chris Golfer as, you know, as his stepbrother. And he said, it doesn't matter how he died. Yeah. And that's true. Because we, we know how Corey Monteith died. It was, you know, tragic. But it doesn't matter. The point is he's gone. Yeah. And that, that is a smart bit of writing mm-hmm. to sit there and say, it doesn't matter. It, it could have been anything. Could have been anything. It was an illness. He's dead. The oh. point is he's gone. That's the point. And that also speaks to one of the themes in the movie. It's not the how that matters. It's the why. Yeah. And... Why, within the narrative of this film, why did T'Challa die? Okay, we know the real world reason for why T'Challa died, but for the, for the narrative reason, it created this springboard for Shuri to not just grow, but absolutely flourish as her own character. Yes, but also gives that character an opportunity to question. Th- I mean, you have this is I want Wakanda to be a real place because oh my it, god, I know right. It, it's just one of those things. It's the perfect marriage of old world tradition and religion versus technology and science. Well, then you see that play out where, you know, there she's there with her mother and her mother's like talking about their ancestors, talking about this. And he saw this and all this kind of stuff. She's like, I don't believe in that. And then she has to actually go through that. And she comes out of that still not really believing it. Well... And that's kind of the thing is when she puts her faith into the heart-shaped herb and she goes through that journey, the same journey that T'Challa went through when he saw his ancestors, when he saw his father. Her outcome is very different. Her outcome is very different. And I'll yeah. actually not spoil that one. Yeah. Because that's, that's intense. Yeah, yeah. And, and But that's that's the thing because we struggle with that. Like generations. You, I know. I, I was raised in a religion that is... Uh, a fringe in the, the Christian religion yeah. hierarchy. I know what that's like to have been born into something, and but you have questions about it that you can't really get answered because even the answers don't answer your question. Well, and, and that's the thing with tradition, right? Tradition and religion is that sometimes the answers are not there. They don't provide you the answers. I remember... Um, talking about ancient christianity with uh with a 
uh, an English teacher you and I have both had. Right. And their answer, like when they looked for answers back in the mid, uh, the Middle Ages, why is the sky blue? Because God made it so. Why is the grass green? Because God made it so. This is the thing. I think this is the problem that Shuri has is that there's, she believes she's a very technologically inclined woman. Yeah. And she believes you kind of get the feeling that she believes that the the tradition holds holds wakanda back yeah and it's not really the case because wakanda has its heart and wakanda's heart is in its people and its traditions yeah and, and you see that sort of with the there's a scene with winston duke and he he, he said he asked well how do you know about that he says what just because we live in the mountains we don't have books yeah oh my <laughs> god winston duke was oh i love winston duke but that, that, but that's it's that's what i mean there is all of this education out there there's all of this learning that can be had and there's all these assumptions that we have about traditions and primitivity and all that kind of jazz if you will but that brings people a tremendous amount of comfort it's what they need let them have it you know don't criticize a person necessarily because they have a belief in god and that's another underlying theme in this if you look at it you know like what happens in the afterlife who is our afterlife who are our gods Nimor is worshipped as a god by yes. his people. And he, that's under is understandable. He, it comes from those Aztec gods that were there. The uh when we see that that um flashback scene when he's a boy and the priest calls him the devil. To the priest he was the devil. He was yeah. Satan. He everything that he he looked like him was was satanic, if you will. So it's all interpretation, right? Well, I mean look, yeah, absolutely satanic. Pointed ears, he can fly yeah. like what else? If you are a priest in the 1600s, what else are you going to interpret? Yeah, that as? how? Yeah, especially when you see what he does. But I mean, it's just this sort of amazing thing. How it's it's like the proverbial onion, if you will. There's just one layer after another that you peel back and you peel back and you peel back, and, like an ogre. And one thing I loved was the trope that they, the Hollywood trope. This is a great Hollywood trope. And they put a little spin on it, and I said it to you when we watched it, that they switched out the arrogant apple for an arrogant carrot. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really uh, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Um, it was such a it was such a weird little it was such a weird little thing too, because it's Mbaku chewing on a carrot, and the moment he get, comes on screen with this carrot, it's just it's great because you're just invested in him because he's eating the carrot. Yeah. <laughs> Freaking great. But, but it sets up the character. And yeah. that's, that's, I think, the, the smart thing here is that each and every... We, we've had this criticism before of other movies where they do not set up the character properly. They don't give you a chance to marinate in who is this character. Okay, we're already familiar with most of these characters. But there are some new ones being introduced and they allowed them to be introduced. Yes. They allowed older characters to be reintroduced as soon as he walks in munching on that rabbit fodder you know exactly what he's all about and in this case all hail the arrogant carrot because it worked the arrogant carrot sounds like a superhero name <laughs> i love it <laughs> but it's, so, it's it's better than the arrogant apple trope because we always see that but i mean that that 
it's and a lot of times it just doesn't work. You just go, okay, whatever. But this, the arrogant carrot worked. So before we wrap it up, there's one other thing I want to bring light to, and that is the score of this film. Mm. The score was wonderful. Anytime throat singing is involved, I am in. That that was brilliant. The part where the uh, the whales are coming at the Wakanda ship. And you hear the low. Oh, it's like oh my god, that was so good. And, and you know the the other thing too. I mean, the getting back and sort of uh, ancient weapons versus um, modern weapons, right? Yeah, and they talk about that as well. Shuri uh, creates a pair of electrical daggers from one of the Dormelage, and she gets a dressing down by Okoye for using a new weapon instead of the spear, and they talk about tradition. Yeah, but it's not even just that. I mean, it's the idea of the the sirens, right? And yeah. Luring men to their death and their doom. It's like, yeah. how do you fight that? Yeah. How do you fight that? I, it's it's just... Well, earplugs. <laughs> you know, listen, I, earplugs, yes, they cancel stuff, but I mean, uh, that... that I'm It's... It's not really a criticism. It's just one of those things where I'm like, I've worn earplugs. I could still hear. I don't know that those earplugs would have worked. Fair. Like, it would have to be complete noise canceling. Mm-hmm. A minor thing. A very minor thing. A minor thing. thing. In, in, a, in a movie that has a man with wings on his ankles and pointy ears that can fly and breathe underwater and ride an orca, th- that's what I'm going to worry about? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so... so and, and honestly, I, I want to say, too, about that. Finally. Oh, my God. How great is it to see Namor on the screen? Right. Finally in the MCU. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, I really enjoyed that. It's, it's not... It's a long time coming. Long. It's a very it's long time coming. But you know what? Maybe, it's, maybe it was just kismet. Maybe it was the universe. Maybe it was whatever. Perfect timing. Agreed. Agreed. I am. I was so happy to have him be the villain of this piece. Yeah. And I use villain. I, I disagree. He's not the villain. There is no villain. He is. This is. I said this to you earlier. The we antagonist. Need, we need to drop. I think the idea of hero and villain, and get back to protagonist and antagonist. Yeah. Because in his realm, he's the hero. Well, and that's the thing. Let's say they had flipped the script and, and it was from Namor's, Namor's uh, point, point of view. view. Yeah. I could see. That's the thing is like uh, this other than kill, wanting to kill Riri, I could see his position. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I did not ever see him as a villain yeah. in this. Not one single time. I mean, I saw him as a douchebag sometimes, but yeah. that's Namor. Yeah. What I saw as the villain of the piece was our own emotions. Yeah. And that's where the movie really shines. And is... our, our and our our anger and our not wanting to see the other person's perspective and the the um, uh, the the idea of being driven by vengeance, which is not the same as revenge. Fair, not quite the same. But we don't. We're not going to get into that because, really, honestly, that is all the time that we have. Yeah, we've kind of gone over this 50, for this episode of Area Fifty One and a Half. Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. Oh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at the Area 51H. Uh, stay tuned for Clapper, maybe not that one, but definitely Mastodon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Area 51 and a half. And of course, don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple, wherever you find 
your favorite podcast. Like us, share us with your friends and your enemies, and subscribe. <laughs> Aliens, thank you again for joining us here at Area 51 and a Half. We'll see you again in two weeks. This is John Allen and... Snyderman 501 Nick Snyder. Signing off. When was the last time we gushed over a Marvel film? Oh, it's, it's been a while. Man. It has been such a long time. Yeah. I think No Way Home. Maybe. Yeah, but this is better than that. Yeah, that, that, that.